This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Scenarios of the Dunwich Dead. Recommendations. Rob Ford, post-rehab. And saving the Bodhi Tree at Bodhi Gaia. Our next sponsor this week is Atlas Games and their beloved time-honored storytelling card game, Once Upon a Time. As you might have been able to guess from that pressy, in Once Upon a Time, players tell a story together using cards. Each player has a number of cards with fairy tale elements on them. Like a dragon, a stepmother, a journey, a palace. Each player also has one ending card. Like, and so his wound was healed, but his heart remained forever broken. To play Once Upon a Time, one player starts telling a story and laying down their element cards. For example, once upon a time, a brave knight set out on a grand adventure. And then you play your knight card. But other players can get control of the story. When a new player takes over, they continue where the last player left off. Weaving in their own element cards. The goal is to play all your elements and then play your ending card so the story makes sense. Great for role players. Great for kids who are usually better at it than adults. Great for fiction writers to sharpen storytelling, if not editing, skills. Pyramid Magazine called it one of the best games of the millennium. Games Magazine called it the best family card game of the year. Designed by, among others, James Wallace of Baron Munchausen and Nobilis fame. The third edition of Once Upon a Time is out now, with a bunch of expansions and more on the way. But Atlas Games has a problem. They still have copies of the second edition left. For a limited time, Atlas is blowing out the still great second edition at a liquidation rate that includes shipping and handling? Check it out on the web at atlas-games.com slash Ken and Robin. So, what are the key things to remember? Once Upon a Time is a card game that's great for role-playing and storytellers. Check. It's an award-winning game created by a towering genius of gaming. Check. There's a limited time chance to check it out at a liquidation pricing. Check. And all the details are at atlas-games.com slash Ken and Robin. Indeed, they are at atlas-games.com slash Ken and Robin. The clatter of dice sounds eerily muffled by seawater. The chat around the table comes from a far distance as though from beyond the grave. And the snacks, while soggy, are, if anything, even higher in salt content. Robin, what does this portend for the gaming hut? Why are we back in undersea Dunwich? Well, the snacks have reached an unfortunate kelp percentage, about 87%, but we're going to soldier on, as it were, and... As longtime listeners will recall, or at least listeners to episode 98 will recall, we took a segment of the Gaming Hut to develop uh, more fully an idea that we floated in yet an earlier episode about the undersea ruins of the English city of Dunwich and various ideas that you could use as a springboard from that. And one of them was that there was a community of the dead discovered uh, living in the ocean and then they come into contact with humanity. So in episode 98, what we did is we took that one idea out of many and fleshed it out some more and developed its internal logic. And basically, uh, to recap, we decided that there's a community of the dead who have the power to sell life to the people of the surface world. 
It doesn't mean that you get to come back from the dead or that if your head is chopped off that you survive, but your natural lifespan, including your immunity to disease, is bolstered so that rich people can now buy three or four or five more years from themselves or 10 more years for their loved ones or, or whatever. So now this is radically changes the economy of the world. There's this new super rare commodity. And in return, the dead don't just want uh, paper money that gets all soggy underwater. They don't want gold that's all littered all over the surface of the uh, ocean from generations of shipwrecks. What they do want, though, is memories. And what they can do is they have a magical helmet that if you wear the helmet, you can put your best memories of your life into it. You lose those memories, but they then become a product that can be communicated to all these uh, dead people, and they can each share a little bit of it, and that gives them the feeling of being alive again. Uh, Ken, did I leave anything out there? I think there was a couple of sort of grace notes. The way that you get um, uh, years of your life back is in the form of asphodel, the flower that grows all over the Elysian fields in Homer, and the sense that perhaps the dead are holding out on us a little bit. They're maintaining an artificial shortage of asphodel, and that they may be manipulating the market in memories and in extra years for their own uh, benefit, uh, that they're creepy and untrustworthy, as indeed the dead are. And the other thing that I think we wanted to mention was that the player characters are this these sort of memory sniffers or memory hunters. They're the guys who go around and get the memories from people and bring them to the dead. So they're sort of brokers between the living and the dead. And because they've handled this magic helmet so often, they have the capacity to sort of smell or taste the memory of the person they're dickering with so that they can tell whether the person's got a real memory of having seen the white stripes before they were cool or whether they're just liars. Like a lot of people try to lie to the dead and say, no, no, you know, I, um, uh, I dated Katy Perry in high school. And it's like, no, you didn't, you big liar. And the, uh, and, and so your memory is worthless. And, and that I think is sort of the, the, the notions that we have, these sort of twin sets of secret agendas and lies and desperation really eking through the edges of the setting and, and flavoring it. So what we want to do this week is come up with the premises for a series of adventures or episodes that would fuel this set uh, of characters and keep them going through the campaign world. And presumably, since we've kind of posited a bit of a status quo in which the uh, stakes uh, seem just sort of like kind of professional stakes. We might want to start to have one of those things where it, you establish the status quo and then something starts to go wrong that becomes the big uh, dramatic story arc, which may or may not have action and suspense in it. I think it sort of feels more like a dramatic uh, storyline that doesn't have a lot of overt uh, action, at least at first. Do you think so, Ken? I, I think that that's, that would be my instinct to, to where you would go with it because the stories about which, you know, the the question of, of memories and extending an individual person's life strike me as very personal stories, very introspective, internal, emotionally colored, psychological stories, as opposed to, you know, stories with a lot of, you know, gunplay and chasing around, although obviously you could have as much gunplay and chasing around as you wanted to anyway, either because, you know, the dead have accidentally absorbed the, the memory of someone whose, you know, memories are worth killing for, or more likely there are outside groups that see this sort of trafficking with the dead as blasphemous and, and unholy, which I suppose technically it sort of is. And so you have to stop these sorts of terrorists or criminals 
in addition to the sort of black market that has grown up in in memories and in extra years, because any rare commodity attracts a black market, which means it attracts criminals, which means it attracts see previous gunplay and, and running about. But I think that we can keep those kinds of episodes either in the background or as or as uh, palate cleansers or mood shifters, uh, not comic relief so much as as vi- adrenaline relief, and then. The main storyline is sort of is sort of intense and in- introspective. Okay, so that's our tone and sort of our structure. So let's start breaking it down further. So adventure one, uh, we want to use as a vehicle to introduce the players to the world that their characters already know and are already operating in. So we want to have an a, a initial adventure that pretty much is a bog standard memory sniffer adventure in which the problem is you need to find this important memory and uh we can maybe since it's a dramatic storyline we can assume that the players are going to have a mechanism where they meet us halfway and explain why it is that this has personal stakes to them Mm -hmm. why does this team really really need to score a great memory now and they can supply the answer to that question themselves as part of the initial opening scene so the opening scenes are basically ones in which the players sort of set the stage and, and create the stakes. So what is our obstacle specifically, do you think, that they might have to overcome in order to uh, get this key memory? What is, what is the thing they're after and what's stopping them? Before we go any farther in, I just want to ask a question about uh, niche protection and character roles. Because right now, all of our characters seem relatively the same because they're all memory sniffers. Is is that wise? Is that what we want? We want one character to be a memory sniffer and one character to be the bodyguard and one character to be the face, and there's kind of roles in it? Or are there other ways we yeah, can... Yeah, I, I would think it would be... Because uh, if we conceive this as, as, you know, if this was a TV show, that would definitely be the way they would go, right? Mm-hmm. That there would be... Uh, it would be a team, and everybody within the team has a set role. So you've got your uh, your persuader. He's the one who closes the deal. He's the the one who uh, convinces people to uh, give up uh, their memories. There's the scout. That's the person who uh, gets the sense that there's a great memory out there or has contacts and, uh, you know, is tracking all of these people who may or may not be willing to give up a memory. The the Intel slash hacker type guy. The Intel slash hacker guy. You've got your, since these are precious commodities, you need uh, somebody who can, uh, and they're easily stolen once they become portable. There's uh, uh, a... Uh, you know, you've got your uh, muscle character. Uh, you've also probably got your uh, counterintelligence guy who knows that there's all sorts of different rival teams, right? That mm-hmm. there's probably, you know, if you start to get the sense that, you know, somebody who was one of the last surviving crazy party people at Studio 54, if word gets around that they're losing their rent-controlled New York apartment, there's going to be a whole bunch of different teams that are going to converge on that person and try and get those memories. So you've got your person who tracks the activities of other teams and knows what they're uh, on about. And then you would supplement those roles within the team with dramatic character traits that either uh, reinforce or, or cut against them. Mm-hmm. And uh, you might, depending on how much magic we want to have in this world, we might want to also suggest that uh, some people are able to do a little bit of the low-level magic of the dead, so that gives you another character type that gives you a, a sorcerer. So That can be like people who've been, you know, medically dead for a period of time, right? That they, they were... 
they were dead, you know, because they they were in a car accident, and so they had to be revived medically or something like that. And if you've been dead for some period of time, and it's not a guarantee thing, because otherwise, you know, people would be, it'd be like flatliners, although that's not a bad thing for style points. Um, but you want to have that as maybe that's the that's the doorway through which you can do a little of the magic of the dead or, or be a speaker to the dead, a necromancer, um, without necessarily going all the way down to Dunwich. Right, and and that gives uh, the players a way to interact with the magical realist or uh, urban fantasy or whatever you want want to call it. It gives you a, a route into the uh, the wondrousness and or even nerd tropiness of, of the setting. Right. So we've got uh, our team concept, and uh, so that returns us to the question of uh, I guess we've sort of said that we've got. So you here. Uh, word gets out on the grapevine that one of the key party figures from the Studio 54 scene is getting ready to uh, sell some some key uh, memories of those crazy times in the 1970s, and that's going to be a big, valuable uh, memory. And you've got this uh, this lead on it, and you're trying to get to New York and persuade this person before. Uh, another team uh, gets to them. And maybe you figure you've got enough of a head start that it's a decent chance it's worth doing. And because, for reasons the players will specify, you are desperate to uh, make a big score, you head off to do this. So what sort of obstacles can we place in the way of this goal that would then uh, turn this from a premise into an adventure? Well, I mean, to begin with, you have your rival uh, memory-sniffing team. That is, you know, the guys who are almost as good as you or maybe just a little better or better funded, um, depending on exactly how you want to go. Maybe they're uh, the franchisees of a big corporation that does this memory recovery stuff like uh, the Pinkerton or the Blackwater or the Wacken Hut of memory sniffing. Whereas you guys are sort of, you know, grimy independent operators or maybe it's everyone is a grimy independent operator and these are just the the slightly uh better grimy or faster grimy or the New York locals and because you guys are based out of London you're half a step behind them at all times but because you've got the the inside track for some reason either the characters can feed you or because that uh person who's um getting ready to be you know uh, on the market is British instead of American. Maybe they, you think, oh, they're going to talk to us, not to the Yanks, uh, and we can, you know, play on fellow feelings. So you have some sort of, some sort of rival group. Obviously, you have the weird personality of someone who is part of the Studio Fifty Four fluorescence, and so they're going to be an obstacle of sorts because they're going to have their own crazy notions of what their memories are worth. And even if their notions aren't crazy, you're not going to want to, you know. Um, you, you want to get as much middleman out of, out of the deal as you possibly can, or maybe you're playing for a commission, and so it's all the you know the the dead lets you keep fifteen percent. I'm not exactly sure how the financing works, and I'm not even sure we would want to answer that in in the game. But the client or whatever you want to call them is is going to be a problem because that makes for more fun role playing, and because I think when you're dealing with this sort of traffic in memories. The intense personal nature of the memory means that you have to have that NPC really brightly drawn, and that means that they need to be an obstacle or at least a a, a, a problem to be resolved uh, socially. In, in even if it's just by the face, you know, making the, the 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 contact, that there has to be some sort of thing there. And I think that do we want a, a deal where as they smell the memory, there's a 
brief, and it wouldn't be like a whole sub-adventure, but it might be like a scene that's played out in Studio 54 where you, you get a taste of the memory, and maybe that a little piece of that personality drifts into someone in the group, or... Yeah, that, that could be something that, that functions like the flashbacks in uh, Oz or in uh, Lost or whatever, mm -hmm. where uh, you establish something about the character that, uh, you know, you have to taste the memory in order to tell that it's, uh, you know, genuine and pure or, mm -hmm. uh, or or whatever. And then that brings up the sort of central theme for the spotlight character that session so that there's some one of the characters, either the group selects or, or you select to be the one who has some sort of personal relevance to their own ongoing personal crises. And uh, so that might be someone who has issues with hedonism or nostalgia or whatever it is. Right. And so they have a little moment where they experience the the memory and that obviously that's something that all the characters have to be able to do and that there's a reason why it's not the same person doing it each right. time. Well, I, I, I think you, you've got it when you say that whoever's got the emotional resonance because these guys in teams have all basically, they've got the verdigree on them. They've got the smell of asphodel on them. So they're all connected up in some sort of oogie numinous way, even if they don't have the pure super good memory sniffing power of our, of our spotlight memory sniffer they wind up drawn into it and that that just happens in the same way that, you know, cops or, um, uh, or guys who are in the same squad in the military, you know, learn to predict each other's actions and know how they're going to behave and, and cue off of each other's emotional behavior or married couples. And you have that same sort of thing happening within these, these teams. And that can be another reason that everyone is, Again, if this was a TV show, you know that the people in the team, because you'd have to keep paying these actors, would be taking the roles of the important people in the past. So the, they would be playing NPCs in the scene, but they'd be playing them sort of as themselves, right? You, you see what I mean? Right, yes. Yeah, sort of a, uh, a Dorothy uh, waking up thing. Right, yeah. And another thing you could establish, and we're again sort of going backwards from uh, laying out adventures back into the setting, and so you can see how it's a process that uh, continues to feed itself, you could also have the conceit that you do not want to, as a living person, take too many memories, because as as the dead, they can, you know, live in uh, George Clooney's memory all day long, and they're already dead. Mm -hmm. But if you're living, after a certain point, you uh, you could have an addiction metaphor, yeah. or you could have an Alzheimer's metaphor, where if you play too many memories too many times in your head too close together, if you don't ration it, your own memories start to slip, and you start to lose who you are, and your head just becomes sort of an amalgam of all these other different identities. I think we can we can have room in this setting for both uh, sort of loss of identity and loss of control. I think both of those are... Either one of them might seem over-obvious, so being able to do both of them makes it a stronger setting, I think. Right. So for the first adventure, we have the obstacles are find the guy, and there's a reason why that's difficult. Uh, for example, you can go to where you think he is and he's not there, so then you have to really locate him, mm -hmm. convince the guy... And then there is a uh, run-in with another team. And the obvious thing to do there is to um, make it a heist attempt where they try to uh, break the memory uh, away from you. And you could also even then, that might be enough of a, a twist right there to establish the first adventure. Yeah, for the first adventure, keep it simple, I think. Right. So adventure two, uh, what do we want to do for that? How do we start to change it so that the core activity isn't just a rerun of episode one and then starts to kind of escalate and move toward that idea that there's something bigger behind this that hasn't uh, been revealed. I think that you can either, like you say, go go big there or you 
pick up a thread. Maybe one of the player characters has given you a hook that sounds really tasty, and I think you start to try to develop a memory that's going to match up with a good player hook. So if they're, like, the reason I'm in this racket is because my my sister is in the hospital and I need the money to, to pay for her treatment. So it's like, okay, now we have, you know, possible hospital stories, we have medical dramas, we have people, you know, maybe someone's memory of their sister is what they're giving up, and maybe they're a jerk and you hate them, but you still don't think anyone should give up the memory of their sister. You should build up a connection to a player character, I think, is the second thing. Because the first one, you just have to set up the rules and, and, and how this, the, the sort of the world operates, you know, quote unquote, normally. And then I think you go deeper rather than go bigger first. I, that's just my instinct in terms of a setting like this. Right. So the second one can be the reverse of the first. So yeah. the first one, you are trying to get a memory. This one, you discover one of the, uh, the focus player for that week discovers that a loved one that maybe they're out of touch with or, or haven't known for a while or a friend from their past is about to give up a memory. And maybe it's a memory that they're in. And the idea that they're going to do this, they find really horrifying. And so they decide this time that they're going to go and convince them not to give up the memory. So this gives you another opportunity to get into conflict with the uh, rival group, the, uh, you know, the slick, well-paid corporate group. But this time you are trying to either stop them from giving up the memory. And I guess this sort of underlines an idea, which is you might want to establish that the raw memory verdigree before it is stepped on and made available to the to the dead, as long as it's still in its uh, undiluted form, the person can be given that memory back. Yeah, as long as the helmet hasn't gone into the ocean, right? Yeah. So that gives you the MacGuffin where you, uh, it gives you a chase where you're trying to get the memory back that they give up in Act Two, Act Three is about recovering it from that team, and you either are the players then have a choice whether to just try and steal it back from the other team or to find another memory and trade it, and this memory is more dangerous to acquire. Right, and then that way they because if they just give the memory back, the in theory the reason that their uh, loved one or or relative or whoever it was gave it the memory is they really wanted those extra years of life. And you can't say, no, your memory of me is more important than eight years of life for your boyfriend. And it's yeah, the, the way to make that plot work is they're just giving it up for money. Yeah, right? Right. They need money for medical treatment. Right, yeah. And you've got, uh, you know, you've got money that you can give up. It's going to, you know, bite into you. But mm -hmm. by the time you get there with your alternate solution to the problem, that things are already in motion. Right, yeah. Because uh, otherwise, it's, you know, you want to avoid one of those things. So, well, they have a point. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Let's well, go home. I mean, you, you still do sort of want to make sure that they have a point because, again, part of this setting is so much about individuals choosing to give up part of themselves or choosing to sacrifice. There's, I, I think that really clear-cut good and evil obviously you don't want to do this type stuff needs to be kept to something of a minimum because again you know it, it takes away from the interiority if everyone looks around the table and say nope we all agree this is a terrible idea then that i think loose uh, loosens the the setting up a little bit too much right um but still that you know you were desperate and really need money yeah is still a uh i think a nice pull there uh rather than uh, you know, you just want to live longer and want to give kids. The other one is just too hard an argument to yeah. make. And then you can move into those as you begin to get a sense of where the fault lines fall in your characters, in your group of player characters. And when you set that up, you can set it 
uh, ideally to run across that fault line as opposed to to reinforce it. So the characters who are always on opposite sides find themselves agreeing in this case and like, what the hell? And so you can, you can sort of throw the, 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 the story into a little more relief. I think another one that you can maybe do is something where the nature of memories, the nature of the memory itself is problematic for other reasons. Like a guy, he's got a memory and, you know, he's, he's a, he's a retired, um, uh, English businessman importer and he lives in Jamaica and he's got a really great memory of, you know, um, something that happened, you know, maybe he was present for, um, you know, some, you know, some, some glorious historical event or something like that. And so you, you go back and you're getting his memory and there's other guys who are trying to steal the memory away and it begins to dawn on you or you discover the Intel guy discovers that this guy is a retired spy or something like that. And the, the, the British government or the American government doesn't want his memories ever sold to anyone. And if anyone's going to have his memories, it's going to be their tame corpse in the basement of GCHQ or something. And that they, that, that there is sort of a, maybe a third force that's interested in these memories or is interested in at least specific memories. And that adds maybe a dimension. And you do that, I think, as one adventure and then you never touch it again for another five or six adventures. Because otherwise, suddenly from this sort of nice, not nice, this sort of weird dreamlike magical realist setting, you run the risk of it turning into a, into a more conventional genre game. And there's nothing wrong with a conventional genre game, but I think unconventional is why you're playing this specific setting. Right. Another adventure you can do is start to play with the idea of black market memories, right? There are illicit memories that even the Society of the Dead deems to be off limits. But, uh, you know, what if a notorious serial killer or rapist who was never caught uh, decides to auction off their memory to uh, all of the twisted and evil psychopathic dead living in mm-hmm. Dunwich? Of which there is going to be some large percentage, one assumes. Uh, one assumes. And so that it might be uh, one of those things where you think you're going on a normal mission just to do a normal memory pickup, and then you discover that the guy that you're going to meet is this uh, serial killer. And although he's getting on in years, if you disappoint him by not taking his memories and refusing him, uh, he starts to hunt you. So that gives you a, a cat and mouse thing where things have gone wrong because you anger the guy who is trying to uh, get a, a deal made with you. And there are all sorts of different uh, ways that you could uh, tackle that. Another way you could play that is uh, that you discover that this team that you really despise is going to get the memories of the serial killer. And this gives you a chance to screw them over and buy yourself much needed cred uh, with the authorities of Dunwich by uh, stopping the uh, transaction from taking place or confiscating the uh, illicit memories. I think another possibility is you can have a, a deal with the devil set up where they get an offer to, you know, uh, to, to fund them or to bankroll them or to give them some desperately needed piece of equipment or intel or, or access that they don't normally have and that is really sort of, they've stubbed their toes on over and over and over in the game. And it doesn't even have to be something as shady as, you know, the Russian mob is making the offer. It could be, you know, their national government that's doing it for seemingly, you know, good purposes. Or maybe it's, you know, George Clooney's like, I like the cut of you guys jib. I've, I've had my people, you know, out and they, they've seen that you're basically moral, decent folk and you're the kind of people I want to be associated with. And then, of course, like everything, there's an interior motive. There's some other thing that's going on 
ulterior and interior motive. There's some else, something else that's going on, some shadowy back part of this story, and it's not necessarily the standard Mr. Johnson wants to screw you. It's Mr. Johnson has an agenda, and it's not going to be the same as your agenda. That's why they're trying to put a harness on you. Another specific premise, you could then explore the idea of uh, memory trafficking. If memories can be taken uh, through coercion, that implies that uh, the really shady dealers will could possibly kidnap someone who mm-hmm. has uh, really exciting memories, you know, those of, uh, let's say, a person who used to be a teen idol and is now living happily with their family. Well, they are uh, kidnapped by the uh, Colombian mob in order to uh, keep them prisoner and uh, take their memories slowly one by one. Mm-hmm. And because you are memory sniffers, you have the expertise needed to go and rescue them. So it, again, in this case, you are. Uh, it gives you a, a different variety of um, missions so that you're not always going after the same MacGuffin this time. And it's and it's front and center for the muscle guy who probably doesn't have as much to do in all the adventures. I think that one of the fun things you can do with that is the way that you bring a memory unwillingly to the fore so that they've kidnapped this teen idol. They're playing uh, her old videos constantly to her. I mean, they're trying to recreate that period as much as they can without actually having access to the memory to to force reminiscence. And maybe there's drugs that do it as well and other things. But I think the the notion that you walk into an environment and instead of being the eerie, dreamlike environment where you're sharing a memory, there's a strong sense of artificial, forced constructedness to these memory palaces or memory chambers where people are put in to make them remember something that they don't want to recall or don't want to have taken away, rather. And you can have the uh, classic adventure trope where one of the player characters, uh, after you get buy-in, after you get permission to, I'm going to torque you over. Who wants to have a thing where it starts where they're torqued over and they have to figure out what happened? And, you know, your player volunteers for that. And they wake up with a headache and they can't remember late 2009 and what happened how did they lose that memory what did they do did they do it willingly the last few days are missing as well and also and also what happened in that period because they don't remember it and this gives you the gm a chance to really slip something exciting into their backstory and lets the player characters use their powers to investigate one of the other characters' pasts in a way that they did not have explicit permission to do in a previous game where obviously everyone's got secrets. And from there, after you've played with this premise in a different way to set up a bunch of MacGuffins, then you can start to bring in the broader story arc. So they go about what seems to be a normal case, and then along the way they stumble into what seems to be the other agenda of the dead. Or maybe you discover, and and that could be uh, any number of things, it could be something that brings back, you know, the uh, evil criminal subculture of the dead, the ones who are absorbing all of these memories from uh, serial killers and uh, uh, various attackers and all these horrible psychopathic things. Well, maybe they're using those memories for more than recreation. Mm -hmm. Maybe they're trying to uh, summon something. Maybe they're trying to uh, create a coup by, uh, you know, dosing people with uh, memories that they're not prepared for in a sort of a a memory roofie uh, sort of situation. Or you find some previous attempt uh, at memory traffic with the dead that was done by, you know, the Nazis or by Stalin or or, or by, you know, I don't know, um, Charlemagne. And suddenly there's maybe a door into some older memories even then you know you know if you're setting the game in 2015 or 2014 the oldest memories are going to be going back maybe to 
you know, tail end of World War One, maybe, and more likely the 20s are going to be the oldest memories you can get. But if there's a stash of really old, you know, premier grand crew memories that, that people know about, the dead know about it because they trafficked with these guys uh, 100 or uh, 50 or 150 or 500 years ago, and so they know that those memories still exist somewhere, finding that could be, you know, sort of the mega MacGuffin that triggers both the dead to want to grab it and the living to want to, you know, finally get some leverage over the dead. The, the big scandal could turn out to be that the dead are having other agents acquire DNA for them so that they can uh, clone people and there's some sort of, uh, you know, magical ritual that enables them to bring memories from the ether of the people who actually live those lives. If they have a little uh, bit of them that they can start to uh, other dead people who aren't undead and aren't living in Dunwich, they can then get back John Wayne's memories mm-hmm. or George Washington's memories. But that involves this horrible thing of cloning uh, versions of them and just keeping them uh, prisoner as, as a focus. And so uh, that could be the thing that they're doing because that would also completely, you know, destabilize society yet again to have uh, this whole uh, captured slave race of, of clones. So that could be the big secret that you start to uncover. Well, we've uh, gone a bit over our uh, segment length here. As we drowned in memories. And so as a last question, uh, how many people do you think would have to tell Simon they, they want this game for us to design it? Well, I think that that's really a question that only Simon can answer. He would have to look at what his um, uh, you know balance sheet is, carefully examine how many copies he expects to sell, what his uh, break even is. But I assume that it's probably somewhere in the area of four or five hundred. You know, so easily within our listener base. <laughs> well, uh, start lobbying Simon, everybody. Sir Thomas Mallory's La Morte d'Arthur is one of the foundational documents of the Western fantasy tradition. It is also a remarkable pain to slog through with aimless plots and numerous continuity errors. Jeff Wickstrom's Arthur Dies at the End gives you a painless, even enjoyable way to attain Mallory knowledge. It's a detailed examination of the text, chapter by chapter, presented in an informal, chatty, even humorous style. Five handsome e-book volumes are available through Amazon. Something about a sword and a stone? Morgan Le Fay, Queen of Gore. Sir Tristan is just awful. Sir Galahad is better than you. And Guinevere, best nun ever. Each volume also contains numerous additional helpful material. Such as a guide to every named female character. There's fewer than you might expect. A guide to the almost entirely male cast of characters, from Arthur's awful father, Uther Pendragon, to Sir Meligrance, who keeps trying to bed and or kill Guinevere. An index of night names, including actual night names like Sir Grumor Grummerson, Sir Wizhard, and the Duke of Dutchman. A listing of every horrible thing Sir Tristram does. Including his straight-up murder of Sir Nabon's son. His abandonment of his wife, Isude the White-Handed. And all the times he screws with Sir Dinadan for no reason. The final volume, as a special bonus treat, includes a likewise detailed and chatty examination of H.P. Lovecraft's The Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath, because after all that Mallory you'll want an aperitif. Six different women named Elaine, three different women named Isode, and Nimue, Nimue, Nimue. All five volumes are available on Amazon.com, and until the 1st of September, the first volume is on sale for 99 cents US. That's Our Third Eyes at the End by Jeff Wickstrom. 
A new machine has appeared on the Fruited Plane of the Ken and Robin podcast, and this machine, unlike a certain device that sends Ken back in time, is clanking and whirring and throwing out experiences that Ken and Robin have had and wish to share with you. It is the recommendation engine. Ken, when I was accumulating questions for our lightning round episode, uh, one of the themes that came up so much that I used hardly any of them was that people really want (laughs) us to be recommending things. So I thought we would create a new segment and occasionally just uh, recommend a bunch of random uh, books or movies or TV shows or experiences or foodstuffs or uh, or whatever. So we're going to have a throw out in our inaugural episode of Recommendation Engine. Surprise, surprise, some recommendations. So Ken, what is the first thing that you would like to recommend to podcast listeners? <laughs> Just the first thing, period. I assume you've come up with a list and decided what is the first bullet on that list. So Ken, hit us with your recommendation. I will recommend, as I have uh, in recent times, the hard-boiled crime fiction of Dan J. Marlowe, which is uh, something of, I mean, it's one of the rare cases where a writer's life is actually interesting. This guy spent some time collaborating with both a former bank robber and a former fighter pilot to write his books and come up with his sort of adventure stories. His most famous character, Earl Drake, begins as sort of a Parker-like heist artist, and because the publisher said, these would sell better if he were also a spy, begins to do (laughs) heists uh, mostly unwillingly for the government. So it's got a really interesting uh, twist there. It's the classic age of paperback fiction, and it's uh, definitely hard-boiled. I was reading one of them in uh, Vegas and pointed to the readout on the Kindle and said to Sheila, we're 13% of the way through the book, and the protagonist has already killed three people. So that's a good sign. I, I just enjoy it. It's it's not you know it's not Stark necessarily. It's certainly not Chandler. But for what it is, uh, in terms of you know mid-century uh, genre crime fiction, I think it's remarkably good and probably remarkably underpopular. So what uh, what period is this that that they're written in? Uh, he st- I think he he starts writing in like '62, and then he suffers a stroke and has. A horrible attack of amnesia in which he forgets everything he's ever written in 1977. So, oh sort of his his period is the is the is the late 60s through the early 70s. And uh, if this, something similar happened today, it would be this would sell much better if he was a vampire. Yeah, this would sell much better if he were. Although, oh God, do not do not send someone out there to write Parker only he's a vampire novels because well, I'm, I'm not sending anyone. Yes, but, you know, you're, you're, I, you're, I don't have control over what people. You do. are calling up that which you cannot put down, which I'm pretty that sure could be somebody's whole career right there on the note card. Okay, to not when do. you go and do this, person who isn't supposed to go and do it, we get a chunk of your. You donate heavily to the podcast, That's and right. you have a whole pulp uh, career out of that. Mm-hmm. Um. Speaking of the undead, uh, my first recommendation... <laughs> we weren't until you brought them in, kicking and screaming. I, I was speaking of the undead. I maybe shouldn't have, but I was. Uh, but here's where I should totally be talking about the undead, because I'm going to recommend the uh, French television series The Returned, or Le Revenant. Le Revenant. From the, there's one season of it so far that they shot in 2012, and there's another season, I think, in production now, or about to air now. But this is an outgrowth of an earlier film that I really liked called They Came Back or The Returned, depending on how it's marketed in your area as a DVD, by a director named uh, Robin Campillo. And the first one is cool because uh, it's all about just sort of 
uh, people come back from the dead, but they're not zombies. There, there are things that are weird about them, obviously, in that they're mysteriously returned from the dead. Uh, they don't sleep a lot, for example. But the film just examines the social impact of having a large population of people suddenly return from the dead after everybody's mourned them and gone on with their lives. And it's very, very French in that a lot of it just sort of consists of high-level bureaucratic meetings on how to handle the social impact of the return of the dead. So it's a fantastical theme, but it's not a horror work. The TV show uh, is much more character-based, and it basically kind of only covers maybe the the part of the first act of the movie, and it doesn't have that broad macro scale. It sort of uh, uh, more resembles, uh, hopefully, that... You know, its first season is at least as good, if not better, than the first season of Lost. The characters are much more uh, real and, and closely observed. And, and uh, the way that it starts spinning out questions as to what's going on and, and very only slowly, slowly brings in the uh, the weirdness. And uh, it's there's some really great reveals. The reveal at the end of the first episode, I think, is puts it on a level of first episode surprises uh, like the first episode of the shield. So if you haven't seen uh, the returned uh, by all means, uh, seek it out on disc or it might be streaming in your region. So this is the French returned, not the American retooling of the returned that you're There is going to be, it's very confusing because there's a novel called the returned that's based on the premise but isn't actually uh, licensed or an, a real adaptation there's a show called resurrection which steals the premise and there's going to be an a and e series that is actually an american adaptation right. of this show yeah i think i was thinking of the resurrection but yeah there is an american version of it coming up as well which we can't recommend because we haven't seen it no one has seen it i don't know a wild crazy guess it's not going to be probably as good as the french one that's an interesting theory based only on every single time that's ever happened. Um, yes, exactly. I will recommend uh, Omkara, which is another Bollywood film and is the single best adaptation of Othello ever put on celluloid. And I include Orson Welles. I include the lovely Julia Stiles in O. I include all of them. Omkara kicks them all to the curb. It is. Uh, it sets it in modern-day India. Othello, Omkara, is a enforcer for a political party and slash... Uh, mob, and uh, his uh, wife in the in the film is the beautiful uh, Karina Kapoor, and the bad guy Iago, who I believe is named Ishwar or Langda is his nickname, is Saif Ali Khan, who is more normally a leading man in romantic comedies. And Shakespeare actually, I think, wrote Iago for the comic in his uh, troupe in the in the in the King's Men, and. The the casting is amazingly good. It's it's he's one of the best Iagos that I've ever seen, and he's really comic really good. actors make great series villains. Comic actors make great series villains, and uh, because uh, Vivek Oberoi is kind of a load anyway, him playing Cassio is pretty terrific. And so it's and I got to tell you, uh, Bipasha Basu steals it with the handkerchief reveal, which is of course an item song, and so it's. It's uh, really, really great. I mean, it's easily is the this, best. Is uh, this period or contemporary? This is this was made in uh, 2006, and it is set in contemporary India. It is set in normal, modern-day India with uh, jeeps and guns and everything. Cool. Uh, well, my next recommendation is lemon oil. This is olive oil infused with lemon oil. 
the brand I have is Morgantino, which I think will probably be fairly hard for people to find because it's a little artisanal one. But search for the equivalent little artisanal one at a store near you that has uh, higher end uh, food products. Uh, it was uh, 15 bucks for a medium sized bottle. And boy, howdy, is that ever worth it. So you can use that as the basis for a uh, salad dressing, or you can cook with it. So you can caramelize onions. Uh, last night I did shrimp and poured the all lemon oil over the shrimp. Sounds like it's a good thing to cook fish in. It would definitely be a good thing to cook seafood in. A little of it goes a long way. Um, if you make bread, uh, I made a loaf of bread with, normally the recipe for the bread maker calls for two uh, tablespoons of olive oil. I substituted one tablespoon of uh, lemon oil with, with the one spoon of olive oil, and that was an amazing uh, loaf of bread. You uh, don't normally eat uh, lemon-flavored uh, baked goods that aren't sweet, but that was um, uh, really profound, if I do say so myself. So uh, for those of you uh, who've been pining for a Food Hut segment but have not quite gotten that, please consider this a uh, a mini nod to the Food Hut. And uh, because we went long on our first segment, uh, we're going to have to uh, save up uh, the rest of the recommendations uh, for later. But our recommendation engine has a backup battery. It can remember our next recommendations, and uh, it'll be back in a future podcast. Ken, have you heard of Shotguns v. Cthulhu, the pulse-pounding collection of action-packed Lovecraftian tales from Stoneskin Press? I have, because I have a story in it, and you edited it. Of course you do, because that was a rhetorical question for marketing purposes. Would you be asking, because Pelgrane Press, Stoneskin's mothership company, has a special deal on Shotguns v. Cthulhu until September 1st? Another rhetorical question, but I'll allow it. Yes, until September 1st, if you go to the Pelgrane Press store and order a hard copy of Shotguns v. Cthulhu with all of its Icker spattered madness, you get not only an immediate ebook download, as is Pelgrane's won't, as is Pelgrane's won't indeed, you also get an immediate ebook download of Schemers. Would that also be a Stoneskin Press anthology edited by you? That's less rhetorical question, but a leading one, but the answer is again yes. Would this genre-spanning anthology veritably drip with tales of trickery, subversion, and betrayal? It not only would, but does, from such authors as Ekaterina Cedia, Jesse Bullington, and Tobias Bacall. A fine accompaniment, then, to Shotgun's selection of fear, suspense, and bloodshed from writers including Scott Glancy, Dennis Detwiller, and Dave Gross. To get the special ebook Schemer's bonus deal, just go to the Pelgrane Press store and order a print edition of Shotguns v. Cthulhu as you normally would. No coupon code or tricky link required. Will it expire on September 1st, 2014? Just as sure as a Glock-toting Shoggoth is looming up behind you. You're joking, right? I wish I was, Ken. I wish I was. <laughs> The 
the creak of timbers from the Pequod, the sight of the spout up ahead, <laughs> the crash of waves, and the endless chapter on the meaning of whiteness tell us we have once more entered the politics hut, and most specifically the Moby Ford segment of the politics hut. Robin, your nemesis, your white whale, your um, uh, anima, your Jungian shadow has once more emerged, spouting uh, vigorously from the depths of rehab to uh, swim towards your boat and perhaps splinter it forever. Robin, the threat, the return, the dawn of Rob Ford uh, once more. What's going on with your pal from Toronto? Well, the emotional ups and downs keep coming. Uh, we're now in mid-campaign for the Toronto mayoralty, and unlike all other sensible Canadian campaigns that are only uh, six weeks uh, long at the provincial or, or federal level, they call an election with no set time. Here we have uh, much closer to the American system where there's a, a set election day all the time. So it means that once it starts to roll around, they campaign for all freaking year. There are restrictions on whether they can put signs up or not, but really they're doing debates and mm -hmm. everything but having uh, signs up. So it's, Do they do ads on Canadian TV during that time, or the TV uh, no, ads they, they can't as well. advertise okay. on TV, but still... So that, trust me, that is a major, major savings on your part. I mean, I have TiVo, so I never see ads, but you know what I mean. I, I'm sure that it is. This will only get worse, or at least only get worse for people who watch local television, mm -hmm. which I do not uh, watch much of, at least not with the commercials. <laughs> so anyway, uh, as we will call from our last exciting adventure, Rob Ford uh, went off to rehab, and so he came back from rehab, uh, as you're supposed to, a totally unchanged man. Right, because uh, rehab is just more about making you who you already are rather than fixing you in any way. Exactly. It's just to strengthen you. It's like yeah. football camp, right. as he uh, very happily uh, compared it to. It's like football camp. It's like football camp. And so uh, we've had a series of adventures since then. Uh, the first one, uh, once he got back, we have the press conference. I hope you can all hear the uh, quotation marks around press conference. <laughs> so the very first thing he did as he got back to proclaim that uh, everything was different and he was healed and ready to go and get back on the run was he had a press conference to announce this at which half the media was excluded and no one was allowed to ask any questions. <laughs> so, so much like the press conferences that you have uh, every day here in your own homes. Exactly. Uh, and so uh, that uh, caused a lot of uh, wailing and gnashing of teeth among the press gallery. Should they uh, boycott those pseudo events? Uh, and indeed, there was a mo movement uh, part of some of the local press to try and organize a boycott. But one of the major outlets, uh, which uh, the identity of which is not quite clear, uh, said they were covering it anyway, because, of course, it's a Rob Ford story. It's ratings. And also, he might at so he might have just decided to start spewing obscenities or take his shirt off or something. I mean, yeah, you can't not cover exploded. it. It's like, you know, not covering, you know, um, uh, Kim Kardashian. She might, you know, <laughs> run, run into a wall or something. They don't call train wrecks train wrecks for nothing. Exactly. And uh, another controversy was that he held this in a small room in City Hall, um, and so afterwards, council passed a resolution that city facilities can't be used for press conferences at which the media is barred. Okay, that makes sense. But anyway, he uh, went around uh, to his uh, few remaining friendly media outlets and spun this narrative about how everything was great. He was fine. It was like football camp. He's ready to roll back in the saddle. The good old Rob Ford, everybody knew and loved. So much so that he inspired uh, people at the rehab facility that he was at to speak as unnamed sources to the press, which, of course, is a 
huge no-no mm-hmm. here on the Ken and Robin podcast. We urge those of you who are in rehab to maintain the confidentiality of it or even more staff members. But the story that came out was that he was very Rob Forty indeed uh, <laughs> while he was in uh, rehab, that he uh, bullied people and refused to participate in activities and he was insulting and rude. Uh, also, at one point, his... Uh, SUV was found uh, outside the facility in connection with a, another uh, woman's DUI, and it turned out that uh, you know he'd formed this uh, buddy relation, co-dep- immediate codependent relationship with another uh, member of the uh, just reaching out constituent yeah. relations. That's why they love him. Yeah, and uh, and while he was there, he was going out uh, this uh, sort of cottage community, and again posing for photos with everybody who would want to pose for photos with them. So he sufficiently antagonized people that they ripped off his veil of confidentiality there and uh, therefore revealed what uh, Ford observers uh, would have imagined (laughs) going on all along. There's also now uh, an official complaint has been made to the city integrity commissioner surrounding his long list of overtly racist statements. So we now have the prospect of uh, a official sanction that requires him to go to anti-racism rehab at some point. Uh, Those work even better than anti-alcoholism rehab. Exactly. <laughs> that, yes. that, I think they have close to a hundred percent ineffectuality rate. <laughs> yes, because there's there's nothing like exhortation that uh, makes people better. <laughs> right. You certainly can be argued out of something you weren't argued into. I don't care what everyone else and all of human experience tells you. Well, you know, even even if he were, uh, you know, told how to insincerely behave. <laughs> Well, and succeeded. I'm that would sure be that an there's improvement, someone who's right? told him how to insincerely behave, and he just slapped the guy on the side of the head and said, "That's for wimps," and then rushes I'm, I'm off to pour vodka. It, I'm over not himself. saying it's achievable in this instance. <laughs> I'm just saying that it theoretically could be an improvement. Yeah, all right, fine. Uh, you know, there's a there's a lip service has value in, in well, our society. I'm not, I'm not against lip service. I just think in this particular case that ship has sailed. Oh, you no <laughs> disagreement there. If anyone was. Yeah, yeah. So anyone got the impression that I thought that it would fix him, uh, I retract that uh, false inference. All right. With, uh, so maximum prejudice. So, but but anyway, the the city integrity commissioner. Now, does the integrity commissioner just have to wait for a complaint, or do they go around? Can they give like yellow cards to people who are who are saying bad things about others? Uh, it does require a complaint. Okay. And a complaint was made by a citizen who is a supporter of, but not a member of the campaign of one of Ford's rivals. Now, now, can anyone file a complaint? Is it like any citizen of Toronto can sit up and go to the integrity commissioner and say, my, do you have aldermen? Counselors. My counselor, my counselor said uh, a horrible, ugly slur about the Eskimos and I demand uh, action now, or is there like a, a, a threshold? Because it seems like this could sort of paralyze the ordinary business of government if people can go complain to the integrity commissioner and then people have to go to special no racism rehab or well, whatever anybody kind of can rehab. go and complain that they said Eskimo instead of Inuit yeah. uh, but uh, then the integrity commissioner has to examine the complaints mm-hmm. and like any ombudsman process they can they only take so many right but uh, the uh, the question has Rob Ford made a number a large number yes. of bigoted again, statements. Again, in the specific inarguable. case, I think that um, uh, that uh, an investigation would be warranted. I think that that's fair. Yes. But I, I was just asking more generically if that's a if that's a problem for Toronto that people are always being hauled up before integrity commissions and then having to you know. It, it is not a system that has been uh, received noticeable abuse. Okay. All right. Good to know. Uh, but then you know we don't have the the hardball spirit here yet, so people no. haven't uh, no. taken to. Uh, 
abusing uh, these processes. This is true. As an American, I'm, I'm immediately seeing that that thing would be, you know, a nest of patronage and paralysis instantly, whereas in Canada, everyone just sort of shows, sh oh, no, there's two people ahead of well, me in we line, say, I guess. Well, it's called I'll... an integrity commissioner, oh, right. therefore the commissioner must have the integrity to right. only accept the acceptable uh, complaints. I see. But speaking of investigations, the Fords, uh, Rob and his counselor brother Doug, are also under investigation for uh, lobbying the city to award a print contract to a printer who also happened to be a big client of their private business. They have a decal making business. Yeah, that was that the, he was, he was, it's, it's the decal fortune, the decal and labeling fortune. It is. You wouldn't think there was enough money in decals to uh, fund a uh, now three-generation political dynasty. There's a uh, Ford nephew uh, also running for a council seat now. Um, That's and great. So, is, is he is he shaped like a Ford, or is he a different uh, different uh, phenotype? I, I've you know I haven't actually Google imaged him, but I I have a picture. I I, I think the genetics is strong in that right. Okay, uh, right. plan. I'm just I'm just wondering if it's like Kennedy's. You can sort of all tell them at you know at a distance. That will have to be left as an exercise uh, for the listener to Google image Mike Ford. All right, uh, but uh, I have my suspicions of what will come what will up. Come up. So anyway, uh, yet another accusation of misconduct. This time a doubleheader against both Fords. The client in question was not, in fact, awarded the print contract that they uh, set up all these meetings to arrange. But what I particularly like this is the uh, quality of the non-denial denials, which are uh, just basically, well, you know, we have this business and we can't be bothered to worry about conflict of interest. Uh, and uh, Doug Ford's uh, explanation really has to go in the hall of fame of uh, incriminating denials. Our business is our business. I don't ask you how much money you've got in the bank. If I have to declare a conflict with every single company or every single person, then I shouldn't be in politics for 14 years, or neither should be my dad or anyone else in our family. And that's the bottom line. So basically he's saying, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the mention of the dad is very uh, psychologically telling as well, because that's the whole Oedipal element of this, is that the founder of the decal company was a provincial politician uh, when they were kids, and this is why they, uh, although both completely temperamentally unsuitable for politics. The Kennedy, the Kennedy comparisons <laughs> once more obtrude themselves on the Yeah, so, you know, the, 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 the anti-Kennedys, since they espouse the, uh, the opposite uh, set of viewpoints. Yes. So we've got that going on. But the main thing is just uh, the, uh, there was this period when he was gone, when Toronto thought it was a normal city, and uh, the ugliness all of a sudden returned for a while there. And when he returned, his poll numbers dropped again. Uh, but the uh, ugliness has surged back. Uh, he has a yearly event called uh, Ford Fest, which is held in a city park. Uh, this year, they were unable to like get a... the Canadian version of the Gathering of the Juggalos, right? Yes, not an inept comparison. <laughs> um, and uh, this year, they were unable to get a liquor license for this event. Well, in what sense, then, is it Ford Fest? Exactly. <laughs> it's like if you have a Christmas tree, uh, a Christmas fest, and you can't get a pine tree license. Uh, Rob uh, made a si reach a similar conclusion when he said that, uh, you know, he, of course, as a uh, cured alcoholic, was not going to be drinking but that if anybody else wants to uh, bring drinks with them, i.e. completely in contravention of Ontario law, uh, that he wasn't going to, he would understand if they wanted to do that. Instead, what happened was a major sort of ugly brawl when protesters 
uh, <laughs> started showing for the up. first time in their life. <laughs> yes, uh, LGBT protesters uh, showed up, and there was an ugly shoving match. And uh, the headline in one of the uh, local city blogs was uh, that Ford Fest starts weird and turns ugly. Uh, but you could flip that just as easily <laughs> that it started ugly and turned weird. Now, now, did the Ford Fest normally get a liquor license? I mean, was did they hold it? They used a, to in the past. Did they hold it in a different park? I mean, why was it refused its liquor license this time as opposed to previous years? Because it was a thinly veiled campaign event. Because the campaign is on. and you can't have liquor at campaign events in Canada. Um, well, not in a public facility. Really, this is this is vastly in in America. You have campaign rallies and and political events uh at, at picnics and barbecues and all kinds of things and and people are all the time drinking i mean that you have it in city parks that, or wherever. That, you've just explained american politics to me ken <laughs> pretty sure i haven't <laughs> <laughs> but but yeah people are all the time drinking is an excellent explanation of everything in america both good and bad mostly good um but yeah so so you can't you, you drink. have to demonstrate some sort of uh civic benefit or civic purpose okay but and and a political event is not a civic purpose. Right, because it's specifically just to benefit one political entity. Right, okay. So, when the campaign's not on, Ford Fest is just a celebration of, of Toronto and fun Ford, and delight. Right, but yeah. then when the campaign is on, it takes on a different character, and it's not equally beneficial to all citizens who I might got you. want to uh, take advantage of park facilities. I, I think that that may be over-parsing it, but I, I grant that once you have the campaign happening, that you, different rules come down, even if they're silly rules, I, I get the right. I get and it's not that, distinction. that drinking is not allowed at campaign events. It's that the city is not required to provide city facilities for campaign events and also grant a liquor license. Right. Okay. All right. No, I'm just the, the, this w window into the magical world of Canada always en enthralls and delights me. Um, so, yes. And one of the, one of the big new things is shirtless protests. Famously, uh, soon after Ford returned and didn't answer any of the reasonable questions one might have of him at his press conference, a, uh, a man who just happened to be uh, jogging shirtless uh, past an event where Ford was appearing stopped and buttonholed him in a famous video where he was uh, confronting him in a way that he doesn't allow the uh, media to confront him. And this went viral. And then other people have started showing up as the shirtless protesters at various events. So... Uh, that's a little bit of uh, great political folklore there. So shirtlessness is like the hoodies in the Kerry campaign? I guess so. Yeah, I don't you, remember you that You were one. supposed to wear your hoodies for some reason. I forget why, because I uh, don't wear That hoodies. sounds like a uh, Kerry campaign imaging uh, strategy it, right there. It, it, it really was. <laughs> yeah. Uh, last night, there was a uh, another debate at which uh, Doug Ford and uh, one of Rob Ford's uh, button men uh, got in a shoving match with event organizers. Uh, it's always good to show up and physically uh, tussle with the uh, people who are running a debate because this is the uh, 19th century after mm -hmm. all. And uh, so that's basically the, the tone of things. But the, the worrying thing is that, in fact, a poll has come out that has got Ford back in a dead heat with the two other candidates. That's so the, like 30-30-30 or is it? 27-27-27. My goodness. I mean, but your theory has been that that 27 is kind of the, the ceiling for Ford Nation, right? I mean, you, you, I think that was about the number we talked last time. It was maybe a little right. higher, 30-something. Or it was down to 22 at one point. Yeah. I thought it was going to stay there. Yeah. Um, and, my, and it's Olivia Chow, the more progressive candidate, who has slipped a bit. And my fear is that it's, it's culture war politics, basically, is that Olivia Chow uh, was all over world pride, which we uh, had a few weeks ago. And it may be that her 
a huge embrace of that event, which traditionally Toronto mayors all go to. Uh, the other candidate in the race, John Tory, was also there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but both uh, Tory and Olivia Chow have been uh, dinging him for homophobia. And uh, I think if you were to have a poll and figure out the number of uh, hardcore homophobes who live in uh, Toronto, it might be around 27%. Uh, is, 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 so... Well, I mean, I don't want to get into invidious guesstimations as to why people are, are, are supporting Rob Ford for whatever reason. I think that, you know, you can use the embrace of a pride event, not necessarily as a marker of your homophobia, but as a cultural signal or a political signal that says, I am for this, therefore I am for all these other things that I don't want to necessarily have to, you know, list out. It's like every other political that's signal. That's the nice you know? way of saying it. Well, I, I think that that's certainly the way to assume about your fellow voters. I mean, you can certainly yeah. s- impute all manner of, of racism and homophobia to Rob Ford because he sort of says it right out. But but right. I think that um, uh, until, you know, a given voter gives you a reason to assume that they are themselves uh, tying themselves to, to, the, to, the, to the Ford whale because of their homophobia as opposed to their objection to, you know, inner city liberals telling them what to do necessarily. Right, but that, that's right. all a package. Well, right? Those things may, all, may not all be. go I mean, together. There are plenty of non-homophobic peoples who don't like inner city liberals telling them what to do. You know, it, it's, it's, it's not actually all of a package. That's sort of the whole point of, you know, having politics in the first place. Well, there's, there's degrees <laughs> of separation between those things, and there's Venn diagrams. And there's also just that I'm trying to see what has changed to cause... Uh, Olivia Chow to to drop, and that's what well, I'm... it sounds like. Though that John, John I, and I always want to say that he's Steve Boring, but John Tory, man, what a what a yes. He, it, it's like if we made movies about Canadian politicians, that would be the name we would give the Canadian politician. Anyway, that guy, John Tory, it sounds like he's really sort of picking up the slack there. I mean, it's more like he's strengthening because previously the numbers sounded like it was Olivia Chow was just you know beating Rob Ford to death and uh, John Tory was standing on the sidelines saying, well, someday, you know, there will be conservative politics in Canada again and I'll be back there for it. But is it is that what's happened maybe? Is that the Tory has really uh, come up on the plague on both your houses type side? Um, I think he's about where he was and that the um, it's Olivia Chow who's, who's fallen back. And, and that it's Ford who's picked up all the uh, all the points. From her um, loss. Yeah, and you know, another exclamation might be that just people have overcome their confirmation bias, right? Mm-hmm. That there was a period of where if you were a big Ford supporter, you had to believe that all of these allegations of uh, crack smoking and bigotry and uh, violence and threats and all these things were uh, false allegations spread by the evil news media. Uh, but now they've just taken them on board as well. Everybody has their personal problems, right? right? Yeah, the, may you, just can't, you can't necessarily say that um, uh, that one person's alcoholic connivance at, at murder and hash dealing is worse than another person's, you know, um, uh, speeding ticket or whatever. But it would buying be. too much office furniture. Yeah, buying too much office. Is that Olivia Chow's secret sin? Is too much office furniture? It's something that the Fords often accuse other people of it for. Uh, other counselors and stuff. If they, that's their gimmick, right? Right. It's yeah. Because I, didn't he famously like refuse his expense account or something to yeah yeah that's furnish his, his whole, office or some uh, thing and uh, yeah. so for example they once uh, recently uh, made hay of the fact that another counselor uh, spent uh, you know twelve hundred dollars on three office chairs uh, <laughs> which implies that they don't know what office chairs cost yeah well I mean it, I've I've been pricing office chairs and you can certainly spend that on three office chairs. In America, yep. I don't know. Yeah, that, that's a good deal on office. Uh, and if they're, if they're office good chair. office chairs, yeah, it's a great deal. Tell yep. me where you can get one for 400 bucks, and I'll sign up. Anyway, um, so that's where we're sitting now. 
Do you have a runoff, or is it a plurality that's going to win If there's this? a runoff, Rob Ford would not have been mayor in the first place. Right. Uh, it's first past the post. Oh, my goodness. So this, this really could be anyone's game. You could show up for the next uh, podcast minus a leg. Yeah, this, this, he could actually uh, pull it off. Now, my assumption is that if the polls are deadlocked, that's, that one of the challengers will break, that people will just go to one of the other challenges. Mm-hmm. The other point I should make, though, is that Polling is a little shaky here. The pollsters missed the big swing toward the liberals in the recent provincial election, which was a big swing that happened in downtown Toronto. Right. And it may be that simply this new poll that came out was from a relatively new, or it's the first poll of another organization. So this right. just could all be noise. It, it could be nothing. All right. And, and the election's in October. Do I remember yeah. that correctly? So that, you know, it just could be a measure that Ford voters are statistically more likely to still have a landline. Mm-hmm. Uh, which, <laughs> which I'm sure sounds reasonable. Yeah. yeah. Although I think that with the landline phenomenon now being, I mean, surely pollsters have begun to take that into account. Although you say that. If but, they had, they would have called the, the provincial election. Yeah. Well, all right. Anyway, that, uh, that sounds like we are, we are, we are ending on a good, uh, on, on a good taut, uh, cliffhanger thriller with the three candidates neck and neck and giant neck. And so we are ready I guess, uh, to back slowly away from the politics hut, uh, shirtless or not, and go into another one, maybe. And that other hut reverberates with the whirring of time gears and the clacking of chronotons as we are again in proximity to Ken's time machine, the vehicle that Time Incorporated uses to hurl Ken back into history in order to bend, fold, spindle, and sometimes, yes, even mutilate it. And this week they have decided to send you to 7th century India to save the peepal tree at Bodhgaya from King Sasanka's Shavist Raiders. So we're going to have to Start with a whole lot of context here. Which element of that do you want to start unpacking first? Well, um, I guess we should maybe just begin by saying what's so special about this peepal tree. And a peepal tree is a type of fig tree, also known as the bow tree, because it is the tree under which the Buddha sat to attain enlightenment. And it was not because a fig fell on his head the way that Newton attained enlightenment. It was the enlightenment of saying... Oh, goodness, the world is illusion, and me being a rich prince is just sort of a clatter of dice, and I should probably go and uh, be a better person about that. And that's what happened to the good old Buddha, and it happened to him under a tree in what is now uh, Murshidabad in the Bihar province of... No, not Murshidabad. It's... Uh, it's um, well, it's now called Bodhigaya, meaning the uh, tree of enlightenment, or the or the Bodhi tree, basically, and uh, that um, it's in, it's in Bihar province, though in uh, eastern India is where the Buddha was sitting when he had that uh, that moment of I guess technically that would have been a moment of um, enlightenment. I think enlightenment, yeah. I was trying to remember the, the the Buddhist word for it, but yeah, sure, enlightenment it is. And um, that that tree would be, then became obviously a giant uh, pilgrimage spot for the uh, for Buddhists. And that it, uh, you know, became a a center of of the Bihar became a center of Buddhist sort of study and and learning and uh, and sacredness uh, pilgrimage, as well as monks. Uh, they they built a giant temple around it eventually, 
Um, and so it, it behaved much as giant temples often do, of being a source of civilization, and one, one assumes a, a little money stuck to it now and again. Now, uh, Buddhism, uh, of course, started in India, but eventually was driven uh, out of it in a, a wave of different conquests and attacks. And one of the early attacks, uh, the one we're talking about here, is by uh, King Sasanka. What can you tell us about him? Uh, King Sasanka, or Shashanka, depending on how you transliterate his name, is uh, sort of one of the first kings of a unified uh, Bengal. He pretty much, um, he didn't quite create the first king in Bengal, but he created the first one that sort of amounted to anything, uh, the kingdom of Gauda, and he is um, generally the guy that uh, is given the credit for creating the Bengali calendar and for doing a lot of other, you know, sort of codifying the laws, sort of, you know, the Julius Caesar, I guess, of Bengal, uh, as um, and every, every, every civilization has one or two of them, and Shashanka is theirs. But he was uh, not so much fond of Buddhists. He was a uh, Shaivite, which is a type of Hindu who is really, really fond of Shiva, and that uh, therefore he and still a major congregation or sect yes, of Hinduism ab absolutely. today. Absolutely, absolutely. And he wanted to sort of um, uh, bring everyone into sort of a. a, a, a general agreement that the king was right, which is the sort of thing that people uh, believed in the Middle Ages was crucial to uh, civic peace. And he would not have been the only conqueror to uh, enforce uh, religious uniformity. Right. And so, according to the uh, lore that has come down mostly from angry Buddhists, uh, he burned down or, or knocked down all the Buddhist stupas in Bengal and declared a reward of a hundred gold coins for the head of every Buddhist monk. And that is the kind of thing that will get Buddhists to write nasty things about you um, and wish that they had a Buddhist hell to put you in. Right. And they also... Uh, ripped up the peepal tree and they poured sugarcane juice uh, where the roots were in order to prevent anything from ever growing there again. Yes. That's a thing that I did not know that sugarcane juice did. Well, maybe it's like vinegar when Hannibal used it to split the rocks in the Alps. It only happened, it only has that effect uh, in that point of time and space and at no other. But again, I've never tried to prevent a peepal tree from growing, so what do I know? Um, anyway, the, yes, Shoshanka, uh, eventually gets his, though, because he is um, going up against uh, King Harsha, who has looked at that time like he was going to recreate the Gupta Empire, and he and uh, Shashanka were sort of dueling over who got to run the eastern third or so of India, and uh, Harsha was better at uh, kinging it and basically beat uh, Shashanka in a series of battles and eventually, you know, penned him back up and conquered uh, Bengal after Shashanka died. And that was the end of Shashanka. And that is, again, why the record of his reign is so, in, in non-Bengali sources at least, is so negative, is because the history is all written by his enemies. Um, and you can have a similar effect. Uh, Indian history is remarkably uh, thin on the ground, despite the fact that they created a whole ton of it, because the they wrote things down on palm leaves. That was their their sort of version of paper, and palm leaves rot. They rot even faster than paper does, and so whatever records were made in these medieval kingdoms pretty much disappeared. And then there was you know a whole bunch of conquerings and burnings things down that happened uh, in India down to the 19th century, and so a lot of their other libraries and such also 
uh, took off. So we only have basically these records of Shashanka's enemies that tell us that he was a bad dude. And I, before we all rush to believe them, I should point out that until the 19th century, it was believed that Ashoka, the great uh, Buddhist emperor, was also a bad dude. He was a he was a childhood boogeyman for people, and it turned out that was because of anti-Buddhist uh, prejudice in India, that they made him into a, a bad guy. And it wasn't until, I think, the British figured out that they could translate some of his stupas or some of his steels, some of his uh, uh, rock inscriptions, that, no, he was actually a pretty good guy and, and fairly enlightened as a ruler and that he, you know, actually, you know, refused war as an object of, of, um, uh, of imperial policy after having conquered Kalinga and killed an ungodly number of people in the name of Buddhism and decided that's really not the Buddha way. And then so you have to sort of be careful with with these sorts of, of um, uh, historical reputations, especially in India and Southeast Asia generally, because the 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 depth of chronicle that you have in a in in a country that kept their records on parchment or vellum just isn't necessarily there in India. Now uh, another aspect to this is uh, like your various missions to save the Library of Alexandria, you're saving the peepal tree now for reasons that Time Incorporated has determined has other various positive effects in in history. But eventually that tree is going to be in trouble again when the um, Muslim invasion of uh, northern right. India comes. Yeah, the, the, the Muslims uh, come and they burn the whole uh, thing down several times in the 13th century. So that uh, that will be a bad scene. Uh, but for uh, the moment in the 7th century, uh, Time Incorporated uh, figures that there are positive ripple effects uh, if you save that tree. So how are you going to do it? Well, that's actually really, really simple because I don't have to necessarily talk Shashanka out of burning down the tree or pulling it up or doing whatever he does. I just have to sort of play rope-a-dope until Harsha comes, or, uh, 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 yeah, Harsha comes, and um, takes care of uh, the problem for us. So given that I have a time machine, it's not super hard to dig up the tree, replace it with a different peepal tree the morning before he gets there, his guys get there to burn it down. They burn it down, chop it up, do whatever. Then I put the tree back. And Oh, it, uh, so I'm just getting a communique from Time Incorporated, though, that it's the public perception of the tree having been destroyed that causes all these negative time effects. No, but if it's miraculously restored the next day, that'll be even better. Ah, there we go. Yeah. And so they go back and they say, uh, hey, King Shoshenka, we, we took down that peepal tree. And King Shashank is like, you liars. We had pilgrims just the other day who, you know, came and made fun of us for, for the fact that the peepal tree is back. And no matter how many times he does it, I got a time machine. And I've got the peepal tree either stashed in a time eddy if, if we have access to those or just somewhere in the, you know, distant past that I can pop back, get it, bring it back, put it back there. He can chop down as many fake peepal trees as he wants. Oh, wait, sorry. I'm, I'm getting another communique from Time Incorporated. Doing that uses time technology to create a Buddhist miracle, and that that's also problematic. They actually need you to get King Shashanka not to do it. Ah, uh, time time incorporated can be such a bunch of jerks. They, Sticklers, normally, sticklers, they are. Normally, it's only about my expense account that this comes back to to bite me. But normally, me sources and methods are are left to me. I'm gonna pro I'm gonna protest. I'm gonna fill out one of those. Um, uh, LP seventeen forms and and get it up onto the supervisor's desk. That's not that's not cool. Uh, all right. So to talk Shashanka out of uh that, I think rather than trying to talk him out of that, the thing to do is speed Harsha's progress toward 
uh, Shashanka, and it's not like that he doesn't have a reason to want to take Shashanka down anyway. Shashanka, uh, at least according to the legend, treacherously killed Harsha's brother, and that's the kind of thing that, that tends to tick off uh, people like Harsha. Uh, t- t- ticks off anyone, really. I think, and um, unless you wanted the brother dead for your own uh, vile purposes, but I, Harsha, despite the name, does not seem to be any harsher than anyone else in uh, Indian history. And so uh, I think what you do is you just sort of speed Harsha along. Um, he uh, is a little bit young to take out uh, Shashanka m- maybe early enough. Harsha becomes king in 606 AD as best as you can tell and converts to Buddhism around that same time. And then um, Gauda has basically got uh, 16 years or so to to screw around. So you need to maybe talk Harsha's dad into, into uh, causing the problem or another Gupta warlord. Again, it shouldn't be super hard to find a Buddhist warlord and uh, encourage him to uh, make problems for Shashanka. Now, the other possibility is that, like I say, because the historical records are so confused and and murky and one-sided, it may be that, that uh, Shashanka's got a bad reputation about all this and that uh, the beheading was just a, a misunderstanding of an attempt to tax the, the monasteries, which the Buddhists also would not have approved of, and that all this could be worked out with just a, a few uh, cups of uh, sugarcane liquor uh, back and forth. So if, if Shashank is a, a reasonable guy, and I say, look, rather than burn the people tree down, just conquer the area and charge people a nickel a gander to look at the tree, and you'll make way more money th- uh, that you can then give to Shiva, and uh, Shiva will be laughing all the way to, to Hindu heaven because it, it, the Buddhists are paying for all of his incense. I think that might be a possibility if he's more reasonable than the sort of uh, demon figure that uh, Buddhist records make him out to be. So either uh, sort of um, step up Harsha's um, uh, predecessor uh, and and have him distract Shashanka with uh, invasions, or if Shashanka is amenable to the good old conquer and and tax policy, uh, let him try that. So Time Incorporated has uh, determined that, in fact, this a course of action they propose is uh, does have the necessary ripple effects, so they're going to send you back and have you do that. While you're back there, given the paucity of accurate records, is there a question that you want answered about this period of Indian history uh, as a sort of a your uh, side benefit that you get from going all the, all these missions? I mean, I mean, I think the side benefit is just building up knowledge about these these kingdoms because you're talking about you know. This is the equivalent of uh, medieval Europe, only without ever having the Dark Ages. These are uh, civilized, uh, literate, uh, sophisticated kingdoms. They're probably, in many ways, the most sophisticated uh, political entities on the face of the planet at this point. Um, We are, uh, you know, maybe the Byzantine Empire is is a rival, or maybe one of the Chinese. Uh, states. I think we're sort of between Chinese dynasties around now. There is uh, the famous Zhuang Zhang, uh, the the Buddhist uh, pilgrim from China who comes down to India and is, you know he meets Shashanka and he meets Harsha and he likes Harsha considerably better. Uh, what with one thing and another, and so I think it, it, <laughs> I can see why that why we would come down that way. It'd be it'd be a good idea I think to to hook up with uh, with Zhuang Zhang and get a, you know, you know, copy down his travel diary, exchange notes, you know, and 
who did you see where, you know, get the full version of, of his story. We have and, a chunk of And you of can, his. you know, look and see if he's protected by a pig man and a fish man and... Because uh, he's the basis of the uh, the journey, journey to the, the west. west. Yes, um, uh, and he uh, and yeah, if, if there's a, a magical monkey that's hanging out with him, that'd probably be worth knowing as well. Um, and so the I, I think just in general, who's doing what to whom when is the sort of thing that normally I would have as uh, on my missions in Time Incorporated. Just getting that baseline for the next batch of uh, Time Incorporated missions would probably be worth it. And, you know, it's India. There's always going to be something to look at. That, that's been true since Alexander the Great's time. It's, uh, it, it's, a, it's a vast panoply of, of excitement. Uh, well, I'm glad we're uh, scratching the surface of uh, ancient Indian history now, and I look forward uh, to your report on your activities. But uh, for now, I think we have completed... 101 podcasts. That's one per Dalmatian. Exactly. So look out for Corella Dubell, people. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Arthur Dies at the End. Stone Skin Press. Dork Tower. Pro Fantasy Software. And Pelgrane Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Save us from having to hawk our memories by hitting the donate button at KenAndRobinTalkAboutStuff.com. Join such patrons as Gerald Kala, Chris Farrell, Greg Sanders, and the munificent Chris Green. Build awareness of your game, Kickstarter podcast, or Holy Tree by advertising with us. Grab the rate sheet at our site. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>